Isaiah chapter 31, and we'll read from verse 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise, and will bring evil, and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers, and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men, and not God, and their horses flesh, and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, Like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them, so shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also he will deliver it, and passing over he will preserve it. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted, for in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have made unto you for a sin, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. And he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. When a mum or a dad wants to emphasise an important message to their child, to enforce an instruction or give them something that needs to be done, they often say, I won't tell you twice. Or they might say, I'm not going to tell you again. And the point that they're making to the child is, you better listen and take note. You need to pay attention and act suitably. And in scripture, when the Lord says something twice, it's a good thing if we take note. The Lord emphasises by repetition. And it ought to be sufficient for God to speak to his people only once. 
But if he tells us something twice, we ought to listen carefully and act appropriately. Here, Isaiah repeats God's word of woe on the princes of Judah that go down for help to Egypt, rather than trusting in the Lord. Isaiah calls these rebellious children, and we can almost detect in the Lord's voice an, I warned you twice about this matter. Now here, as we come to this scripture today, we are talking about spiritual matters. And I just mention this so that no one is under any misapprehension about what I'm talking about. Not seeking help from others is not to suggest that we neglect to take appropriate steps in practical matters. We're talking about spiritual things here. So, yes, by all means, get help in practical matters. If your brakes on your vehicle need fixed, take it to a garage and get them done. Visit the dentist when you get toothache. Make preparations for things that need to be done in practical matters. And yet even in these things, let us as the Lord's people be wise to daily commit our everyday needs, first of all, into our Father's hands. We're not given wisdom to do everything that needs to be done. We're not all car mechanics and dentists. We're not all doctors or, or aircraft pilots. There needs to be a relying on the skills and abilities of others. That's not what we're speaking against. And it's presumptuous for the Lord's people to think that we can be experts on things that we know nothing about. But we commit our needs into our Father's hands. And we live with a sense of his overarching care and sovereignty in all our circumstances. What that means practically is that we don't despair when things go wrong. And we don't get angry when our plans don't work out. And equally, we don't get big-headed when they do. Rather, we try to see the Lord's hand in all our circumstances and in all our needs. There was a time when, give us this day our daily bread, was a genuine prayer of the Lord's people. Now we have the choice of five supermarkets that we can go and buy anything that we need. And few of us are so poor as to worry about where our next meal is coming from. Therefore, the Lord gives us other problems to keep us humble, to make us modest, 
and to ensure that we remain dependent upon him. In spiritual terms and with a gospel awareness, trusting the Lord means resting in Christ and knowing that he alone is fit and able to save us from our sins. It's not resting in our own works. It's not relying upon the uh, good uh, uh, orders of our church or our minister. It's, it's not imagining that because our parents or our grandparents were Christians that we're, we're Christians too. It is going to Christ personally for the help that he alone can give. It is knowing that he alone supplies the righteousness and holiness that we must have to stand in God's presence. It is to hear the Lord's admonition. As it is recounted in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And it is to confess in faith and sincerity with the psalmist. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. That is, don't trust in yourself and don't trust in any other man. Isaiah is about to give his readers good reason to place their confidence in Christ and not to flee to Egypt for help seeking human aid and assistance, whatever that Egypt might be. So I want us today to look especially at verses 4 and 5. And I say that because I hope that we do give a look to the little letter that comes out on uh, the, the, the Saturday before our service. I, ho I hope we take uh, time just to read that little article and get a, an overview of what the Lord is teaching in this passage in its context. But today I want just to take a couple of verses and make application directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say that probably neither of these two pieces, the, the sermon today nor the, 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 the letter I send is dependent upon one another. But I do feel that together they give us a more rounded appreciation of what it is that the Lord is saying. So verses four and five are primarily before our minds today. And I want to draw some spiritual lessons from the Lord's words to Isaiah here. As we read these verses over, let us pause and think what a privilege, what a privilege we have to have God's words given to us. What a privilege that God speaks to us and that we receive the gospel from the lips of our Saviour, from his prophets, from his apostles and from his preachers. Isaiah says in uh, this uh, little, little passage, verse 4, For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me. 
Thus hath the Lord spoken unto me. And then he relates, then he recounts the things that the Lord has said. May the Lord give us ears to hear his word. May he give us grace to receive it. And wisdom to believe it. To the salvation, support and refreshment of our souls. The imagery that Isaiah uses, or indeed the imagery that the Lord uses, is of a young lion for fierceness and birds for speed. And we are told that the Lord of hosts will come and fight for his people with fierceness and with speed. This, as we have Seen, in the little note, had an early fulfilment in the destruction of a large part of the Assyrian army outside of Jerusalem. That's recounted in 2 Kings chapter 19. But it also has a spiritual reference to the work of our Saviour on the cross. And we're going to take three phrases from these two verses that we might see how the Lord fulfills this promise to protect and deliver not merely the remnant of Isaiah's day but all his elect, all of Mount Zion, the church of Jesus Christ in every age including our own, including for you and for me. This is how the Lord fights for his people. So three phrases that we're going to think about. The first phrase is, descending he will fight. And that we're going to apply to the Lord's conflict on the cross. Secondly, we're going to use another phrase from these verses, defending he will deliver in the context of the Lord safeguarding his people in their own life's experience. And thirdly, passing over, he will preserve. And that we will apply to the Lord actively attacking our enemies. So these are the three things that are before us today. Descending he will fight, defending he will deliver, and passing over he will preserve. So, first things first. Descending he will fight. And here we have in view the Lord's redemptive battle on the cross. There are lots of examples in scripture where the Lord fought for his people against their enemies. You, you could almost open, <laughs> you could almost open the Old Testament anywhere and discover an example on, on any page of where the Lord is fighting for his people. We've just spent time thinking about Jericho, where Joshua was told, the Lord will deliver this city into your hands. The, 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 the people of Israel didn't strike a blow until that uh, city was, was completely flattened. 
Before that, there was Egypt at the Red Sea, where the Lord fought against Pharaoh and destroyed his army. Or Amalek, when Moses' hands were held up uh, by, by his associates there on the mountain, and Joshua fought that battle, Aaron and uh, Caleb held up his hands. Or when Joshua faced the Amorites and the sun did not set until the, 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 the battle was won. And we're told the Lord slew more by hailstones than died with the sword. The Lord had promised the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 23. I will send hornets before thee which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hivite from before thee. Let me just pause there for a moment. This is, this is in brackets. This is a little aside. You see what the Lord was saying here to the children of Israel? This is in reference to what we've just spoken to the young people about. The Lord was saying effectively that he would win every battle for the children of Israel, even before they struck a blow. I am sure that AI would have fallen just as surely as Jericho fell at the hand of the Lord had not Achan taken that accursed thing into the camp of Israel. Achan's sin was considerably more grievous than the 36 men who lost their life before AI. Every battle that had to be fought thereafter was because these people did not trust the Lord. And all these examples that we have, impressive as they are, are designed to point not to the events of the hour of the time, but rather to something greater and grander. That battle that the Lord Jesus Christ would fight on the cross against Satan and death and hell when the iniquities of all the elect were placed upon him and he became sin for us and he bore the punishment of that sword of justice unsheathed against himself in his own body on the tree. On the cross the Saviour fought the battle of eternal dimensions. The sword of God's justice being unsheathed against God's shepherd. Here the weight of the elect's sin threatened to crush the Saviour's spirit. Here the bands of death wrapped around his head. Here the gates of hell tried to enclose and imprison him when like Jonah he went down into the depths. Here the strong man Satan set his house against the Saviour. And yet here on the cross our great deliverer fought against them all and gained the victory. Psalm 98 verse 1 says, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. 
That is a messianic tribute to the accomplishments of our Saviour on the cross. The whole of Scripture looked forward and back to that three hours on the cross. Now Christ's battle on the cross included enduring pain and shedding blood. But by it, Paul tells the Ephesians, Christ led captivity captive. That is, he conquered and he triumphed over sin and Satan, the world, death, the grave and every spiritual enemy of his and his people. Especially the devil. And realising that fact, realising that Christ led captivity captive, realising that he obtained all the glory, that he obtained all the victory, gives Paul's words to the Corinthians much greater meaning and value and makes them more precious when we are told that he says, thanks be to God Listen, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ led captivity captive. Christ obtained the victory. But Paul says it's been given to us by Christ's death. We have victory over sin. Satan, the world, death, the grave and every spiritual enemy. He won it and he gifted it to us. He gifted it to his people. This is what the Lord is promising Isaiah and what Isaiah is speaking to the remnant people about. This is what the Lord promised Isaiah he would do when he said, I will come down to fight for Mount Zion. And it's what Isaiah told the people of his age to comfort their spirits in the midst of all the trials and problems and circumstances that they had to face. And sure it is that the angel of the Lord came down and slew the Assyrians. But the fulfilment was Christ's promise to come and fight for his beloved bride's glory. That it was Christ's promise to come and fight for his people's eternal life. And this he did on the cross. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, made these comments. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. See, remember that Zacharias was just thinking about the Old Testament scriptures. All he had was the Old Testament scriptures. He, he, he hadn't seen anything of the work of Jesus Christ in reality. He was still thinking about the birth of his own son and the birth of the Christ child. And this is what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets. You see, the Lord's people understood. They understood that these things 
weren't just for the time of their age, but were messianic in their dimensions. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. So that is our first point. The Lord Jesus Christ came down to fight for us on the cross. And here's the second point that I want to leave with you today. The Lord says that not only will he come down and fight for us on the cross, but he says, defending, I will deliver. Not only did the Lord fight for his people on the cross when he died, he continues to defend his people in their life's experience. Now someone might ask, if the Lord gained the victory over all our enemies on the cross, who's still left to fight? And why is it that the Lord's people need to be defended? And, and why does Paul call on the church to fight the good fight of faith? Who is it that we're fighting? And the answer to this is that while we remain in this world, living in this body of flesh, we have to fight against its carnal passions. We are prone to weakness. We carry about with us the old man, the man of sin, who while no longer dominant as he once was, nevertheless is active to trouble and discomfort the spiritual new man in every way he can. He tries to spoil the life of Christ in our soul's experience. Now this is an important lesson for us to know and to properly interpret because these are the daily battles we have as believers. This fight that we experience day by day, this, this, this battle, this opposition is not because we are not saved but because we are the Lord's. If we weren't the Lord's, this battle wouldn't be real. In each believer, two principles are at work. Two natures coexist. The old and the new nature. We have an unrenewed body of sin and death, which is carnal and sold under sin. And we have an inner new man, which is regenerate and which is renewed day by day. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For which cause we faint not. Why would we faint? Because we are being 
attacked because we are being made weary in the, in the fight, in the battle. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. I once preached a funeral sermon on that very verse and it was very appropriate that we should think in that way. We faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Actually, the Holy Spirit teaches the church to recognise the work of regeneration by this very conflict. It is because of this conflict that we can recognise the work of grace in our lives. The battle between nature and grace, flesh and spirit. Because it exists in every true child of God. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other. So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And this is the fight of faith. And this is the fight for which every believer is equipped with the whole armour of God, gipped with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. These aren't real pieces of armour. These are spiritual graces by which we labour against principalities and power against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the spiritual battle that every child of God is engaged in daily. And these spiritual weapons are to fight spiritual enemies. Because while the Lord has given us the victory, we must yet remain in the world and engage with the old man empowered as he is by fleshy temptations until the Lord allows us to lay down this body of flesh and brings us home to glory. Now let me just wrap this point up. If I, if I may, let me show you what all this means. Isaiah was telling us when he says defending he will deliver. He is telling us that using these elements of our spiritual armory, we rest in the merits of Christ's victory on the cross and thereby the Lord defends us from the attacks by the old man and the accusations and temptations of the devil, who once was able to carry us captive at his will, but now is restrained to making accusations against us while he roams round about seeking to devour us. But he's prevented from doing so by the power of Christ, our shield and defender. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, because of the spiritual armour that we wear, we have the victory 
experienced, not only in our head by faith thinking about what Christ has done, but in our experience day by day. We understand these accusations that, that Satan makes. He's the accuser of the brethren. We understand the accusations of unworthiness, the charges that he levels against us of sin, the attacks that he makes against our conscience. And we are sensitive to them. But the gospel tells us these have no more hold on us because Christ stands for us, intercedes for us, defends us by the merits of his own blood and righteousness and the victory that he has gained on our behalf. So let me complete this point with this little application. This is the work of faith in your heart. Do you feel the weight of sin? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel that you're failing in the things that you try and do? Do you feel weak in every sense, unworthy of Christ? Then with an eye of faith, look away. Don't look at Egypt. Don't look at man. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your failings. Don't look at your, 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 your troubles. Don't look at your weakness. With the eye of faith, look away to Christ. Look to his cross. Look to his blood. Look to his righteousness. Look to his resurrection. His victory. And believe it is ours. Because it is ours. It's all ours in him. This and this alone causes the devil to flee from us and sets the old man on his backside. In this, Christ has fought for us on the cross and in this, he is defending us daily as we exercise faith in him. And then very quickly, let me just come to this last point that I want to draw from these verses. We're told finally Passing over, he will preserve. What does this mean then? What's this third element of the Lord's fighting for his people? He will come down and he will fight for us. Defending, uh, he, he will deliver. And passing over, he will preserve. So here the Lord is adding a third sort of spiritual militant action. He will fight. He will defend and he will actively attack our enemies. So that the sense seems not to be only that the Lord passively defends his church against the attacks of their enemies, but he is actively and aggressively attacking our enemies. He confounds their schemes and confuses the efforts of those who try to harm his people. He causes them to fall into the pits that they dig and to be ensnared in the traps that they devise. Do you remember in Egypt how Israel hid under the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses? 
And the Lord went through the land and slew the firstborn of every family. He passed over the land of Egypt, bringing death and destruction in his wake. And this is the very same word that is used in this passage. Passing over, he will preserve. And as the Lord passed over and took the lives of the firstborn in Egypt, so he brings judgment upon the enemies of his people in this world. We have protecting angels, armies of mighty spiritual beings in fiery chariots who constantly surround our foes and wait on the command of our loving friend to strike such a fatal blow against them. How is it, using the Old Testament picture, how is it that the line of promise, the line of Christ, was preserved through out the history of Israel when numerous nations tried to exterminate the Jews. Multiple nations tried to exterminate the Jews. That was Satan employing the nations of the age to destroy the line of promise. But he was never successful. He was never successful. How is it that the church of Jesus Christ is able to exist in this world when the powers of hell are baying for our blood? It is because our Saviour takes the war to our foes and he spoils their plans and their strategies. Let us never imagine that because the Lord Jesus Christ is gentle with his church that he is gentle with with this world. Let us not think that his patience with sin will last long. He is a man of war. He is faithful and true and he is coming swiftly in judgment to make war with this world. Isaiah finishes these verses by calling upon the Lord's people to repent and to return to the Lord. Turn ye unto him, he says. And this is a very suitable encouragement for us to turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord in every situation. Lean upon him for every deficiency. Call upon him for all our need. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Amen.